0: And as offering is being passed, if you guys want to grab a Bible and open to Acts 6-7, we're going to review a little bit from last week and and sit in chapter 7 a lot. Uh, If you have an aisle Bible, it'll be around page 914, I believe. So this morning, um, Paul has graciously allowed me to preach through 53 verses with you guys. So we're going we're gonna to dig into those in a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I want to go over kind of our main point for this morning. Stephen's sermon points us to the sovereign, abundant grace of God toward rebellious sinners. That would be us. It also, though, points us to the danger of hardening our hearts against God's grace. And we see that as, as he goes through his, his message, and, and we'll, we will walk through that. Uh, somewhat, not quickly, um, but not as deep as I, I wish I could do just this passage in about eight weeks. So um, that was probably my hardest part in preparing for this morning was deciding what not to put into it. So um, I'm wondering though, as I stand here this morning, have you ever questioned God? Wondering how you got into this situation or what you're going to do now? having gotten into that situation, how you're going to get out of it or through it. This, this was kind of one of those weeks for me. Um, as I was having some poor me moments, really the last maybe week and a half. And honestly, I, I have a hard time with poor me moments because my reaction to poor me moments in my life is, Nathan, you got to suck it up. you got to get through it because you don't even deserve this. In fact, all you deserve is hell. And so, why don't you, instead of having this poor me moment, look at what God is trying to teach you through it. But um, for this week, for whatever reason, it just kind of kept falling back to poor me. And I kept thinking that I've, I've just come off this very busy summer at Camp Manitoka where I worked many hours and was just drained and tired. The last two weeks have been really busy at camp um, with uh, other outside programs and preparing for uh, a busy fall, which is all huge blessings. Um, but all I'm thinking is, so I'm coming off all these busy times, and now I have to write summer sermon. Why in the world did I agree to preach on this, summer, this Sunday? This, it, it, it was a chore at the beginning of this week as I started looking through this stuff. And so that's, that's kind of what's running, running through my head as I'm, as I'm reading through these 53 verses. Did I mention that I'm preaching through 53 verses this morning? Um, that's what's running through my head. I'm reading this, and I'm just overwhelmed, and I'm daunted, and I don't know how I got into this situation, and I especially at that point had no idea what I was going to do this morning up here. But then I really started to dig into Stephen's message. I started reading through some amazing commentaries, and my heart was broken. (laughs) Here I am upset because I'm a bit tired, and I'm a bit worn down, and I have this chore of reading through God's word. And I put that against Stephen, who has been arrested on false accusations, brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the court, and, and really made to defend his life. And all of a sudden, my poor me moment seemed pretty small. Because <laughs> what does Stephen do in that moment? He doesn't sit back and say, wow, poor me, I got arrested on false charges and things aren't looking good. In fact, he does quite the opposite. Stephen was an amazing man who was able to put his wants and desires aside long enough to become completely saturated with the Holy Spirit. Just before he started speaking, Scripture tells us that his face shone like that of an angel. He didn't walk into this proceeding thinking, what's my best defense? What's my best way of getting out of this situation? Because really what he's, what he's expecting, probably at best, exile, and at worst, execution. But that's not what's going through his mind. And if, instead, he sees an opportunity to speak of the mighty works that God has done in being faithful to his people through history. So he entered into the proceeding and he let the Spirit work. At the same time, he didn't just sit back and say, you know what? I've, I've been framed in this, and there's really no way out of it for me, so I'm just going to sit back and hope that God does something. I'm not going to be prepared. I'm, no. Stephen was a very learned man. He, know, he knew his Old Testament very well, obviously, because what we're going to go through is all from memory. He knows this stuff. He knew Scripture. It was part of who he is. It wasn't just stories. It wasn't just something that made him feel better or something he'd read when he couldn't fall asleep. It was part of his person. And so he presents this history. And he did it in a way that indirectly answered both the charges being brought against him. And so at the, let's, let's pick up at the end of chapter 6 in verses 14 and 15. It says, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then gazing at him all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So the charges are that Jesus will come and destroy the place, the temple, and that that Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So these are the two things that, that I want in our heads as we're going through what Stephen is saying. And, and even before we get into the scripture, I just want to say that in this moment, Stephen is a stud. He's standing before some of the most prestigious, you know, just high and mighty men of his time, and he walks in with a complete reliance on God, on who God is, on what promises God has made to him, and his faith in God. This is a God who sought Stephen out by extending grace to him. And that alone should be enough to light a fire under our seats this morning to follow in the steps of living a life that is one of making ourselves less and him more. So that also being in mind, let's read through the first 50 verses that we're going to go through this morning because I want to save the last three for last because they're my favorite. <clears throat> so, starting at chapter 7, excuse me, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, God said. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt, over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family Became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, seventy five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver <clears throat> from the sons of Hamor at she- in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire on a, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, take off the sandals from your feet. and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of this land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heavens. As it is written in the book of Prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had set, seen. Our fathers, in turn, Brought it in with Joshua when they were dispossessed in the nation, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? We're going to stop there for now. So, that's Stephen's defense. <laughs> he very much goes his own way in this. Earlier in Acts, we see Peter meeting the Sanhedrin's accusations head on and point by four point by point in Acts four. But here Stephen takes a much more indirect route. He doesn't even really mention the name of Jesus Christ in his defense. But he shows the vast extent and knowledge of knowledge and respect for the Old Testament as he highlights a few key characters as he walks through the history. And as he's highlighting those, they all support his claim That the gospel is truth, and that Jesus is who he said he is. This message is is kind of a a transition message. It ushers in a new way of thinking, of living, and of doing. Thinking about what grace, what the grace of God looks like in our lives, living out the call that God has placed on our life. It's changing, it's different. And so Right now, we're going to walk through this speech, um, character by character, as it were. And then we'll, we'll kind of point out some of the important things. And then we'll hit 51 through 53 at the end. So starting in verses 1 to 8, he starts with Abraham. And more specifically, he starts with the call of Abraham. And so it's an important thing to point out the place where Stephen says that God first appeared to our father Abraham was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and now this is a bit different than what we would read in the early, later, early chapters of Genesis, where it, uh, it kind of seems that that God spoke to Abraham in Haran. And you may ask yourself why the place is important, because when I was reading through the commentaries, I was kind of wondering why they were stressing this so much. So, as to where Abraham was called. It's later confirmed that God spoke to him in Ur. And that's a big deal to Stephen. Because you see, what what Stephen is trying to do here is set a scope. He's trying to set a scope of where God is. He's stressing that, that God is not limited to a place or to a people or to anything. And this is cool for two reasons. Because as we see God go to Abraham in Ur, It shows that that we love a God who first loves us. A God who reaches out to us. Before we know him, he has known us. When Abraham's family still worshipped idols in a far off land, God appeared to him and Abraham was called to uproot his family and go. And that's exactly what Abraham did. The second reason that, that this is a big deal is because it reveals what we already know to be true about God, that he is, in fact, omnipresent. He is everywhere. Not limited, and not limited especially by any human construct. So now we have the God of glory appearing to Abraham in a far-off land, telling him to go to a different land. And even in Abraham's journey, he never settled down. Even when, when he was in the land, he didn't get any inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Abraham had nothing but his faith in following this God who was calling him. God promised Abraham that his children would inherit the land, but first they too would be enslaved and live in a foreign land for 400 years. But God again would intervene and judge the nation that enslaved them. And Abraham's descendants would come out of the land and worship God in that place. What a promise. Especially since at that time, Abraham was was pretty old and didn't have any kids. But he's promised that his descendants would be the nation of God. So with the covenant of circumcision, the journey began. Abraham had Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the twelve patriarchs. And that's a perfect transition into Joseph. Joseph. Verses 9 to 16. So we have Joseph growing up, and we know that his brothers grew jealous of him. And I, I know that I have had jealous feelings towards other people, but I've never had the thought cross my mind that I should just sell them off to get them out of my life. So what we need to understand here is that there was a burning hatred towards Joseph. This wasn't just a passing dislike or annoyance, or he's daddy's favorite. This was a burning hatred towards Joseph from his brothers. But isn't that just like God? (laughs) Through this burning hatred, his plan is set in motion still. Remember back a few verses, God tells Abraham his descendants would be enslaved into a foreign land for 400 years. Here it is. Joseph is sold into Egypt, encounters many trials and tribulations along the way. Um, All the way through it, God is with him. If you don't know the story of Joseph beyond the Technicolor Dream Code, I would suggest that that you get into it and really dig into it. There are some amazing examples of Joseph's faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to Joseph in that story. So through all these trials, ultimately what ends up, Joseph ends up running Egypt. Right? He is in put in charge of Egypt. In all of Pharaoh's household. Joseph was on the rise, while back in Canaan, his family was starving. But God was with them as well. Joseph's brothers went to Egypt three times. The first they were sent there to get grain because they heard that Egypt had grain and they had nothing. The second time was when Joseph reveals himself, and the third time is when Joseph's whole family comes into Egypt, and Pharaoh welcomes them. This trip to Egypt was blessed. Jacob um, had some doubt, had some nerves about entering Egypt. But God appeared to him in a vision right on the the border that confirmed that he would bless them in this new land and that spurred him on to enter into this new land. He also, in this vision, affirmed that he would ultimately bring them back. And indeed, when, when God's people returned to the promised land, Jacob's bones and and Joseph's bones were brought back with them and buried at the plot that Abraham had purchased. However, in the meantime in Egypt, God's people increased and multiplied in number and there arose over Egypt a ruler who had forgotten about Joseph. And that brings us to Moses. 17 to 43. Now, you may notice even just by those numbers, the time that that Stephen spends talking about Moses is significantly more than anyone else. And probably the, the main reason for that is just to demonstrate on Stephen's part to the Sanhedrin that he had an immense respect and knowledge of what Moses did for his people. Stephen had a huge respect for the leadership and law-giving of Moses. And we see that in this, in this section. He kind of breaks Moses' life into 40-year 40, 40 periods. The first 40 years he's born, and he is beautiful in the sight of God. He's brought into Pharaoh's house and raised as an Egyptian, and mighty in word and deeds. In the next 40 years, when he's 40 years old, he, he gets this itch to go visit his brothers, right? The children of, of Israel. When he saw an oppressed man being mistreated by the Egyptian, he defends this man and kills the Egyptian. We see here that, that he has a love for his people and a hope that they would see him as a redeemer, as a rescuer sent from God. But the next day when he sees two men arguing, he, he intervenes and says, Brothers, you are brothers. Why are you, why are you quarreling with one another? And the instigator of that, of that argument basically pushes him aside and says, who made you ruler and judge? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses freaks out. He runs away. That had to be a blow to Moses' person because in his mind he's thinking, this is it. This is my chance. This is my chance to show all of Israel that I am here to get them out of this land. But instead he He's exiled. Exiled to Midian, where he becomes a father and has two sons. So he's in the desert for 40 years. And one day, an angel appears to him. And he's so amazed by this bush, by this, by this appearance, that he has, he's like a moth to flame. <laughs> he has no choice but to be drawn to it. And as he gets closer, the voice of God speaks to Moses. Moses. Here in the desert, this guy who is killed, who was raised his, as an Egyptian, and who ran away, God speaks to him and tells him to remove his sandals because he was on holy ground. This idea of of God consecrating that ground as holy ground is very central to Stephen's claims. Because he establishes that there is holy ground. Outside of the Holy Land. Also, he firmly establishes that the same God that met him in the desert was present in Egypt, because we hear God say that I am well aware of the afflictions of my people, and I'm going to do something about it. So God is there. God is everywhere. Then he sends Moses back to Egypt once again to free his people. The next forty years is spent in the desert after Moses had, in fact, with God's help, set his people free. Moses' authority and place of leadership over the Israelites is established through wonders and miraculous signs, both in Egypt and in their travels through the desert. However, the people had fickle hearts. And this privileged nation who was brought out of bondage, who was brought out of captivity, had quickly turned their hearts back to Egypt, longing to be slaves again. And away from the God of the universe, who had been providing for their every need, every step of their journey. It's here that we start seeing Stephen anticipating the end of his defense. As he points the current leaders who he's standing before, who have also turned their hearts from God toward their fathers in the desert, those leaders who did the same thing. How quickly are we to turn from God, aren't we? For the people in Moses' time, when he was gone for a bit, they told Aaron to create them another God. They were sick of waiting. God wasn't running on their time schedule. This same God who very recently just got them out of captivity wasn't running on their time schedule. And so therefore, we're going to go our own way. Let's build a golden calf. Let's worship that. Let's rejoice in the work of our hands and what we have done. In Stephen's time, The religious leaders thought much of themselves and not much of God. They too were rejoicing in the works of their hands and what they had done and what they had accomplished and the laws that they had passed and the way that they had gotten enforced. And today, we are so distracted sometimes that I'm not even sure we know where to look for God. God doesn't appear on our iPhone or on our TV and therefore we're more drawn to that of the world to those things than to what God has for us and has placed in our hearts in our call. But we can't hear that because there's too much noise above that. We're going to move on to, to verses 44 and 50. In this, Stephen references the tabernacle and the temple, David and Solomon. Now, it's, an, it's important here to establish that uh, Stephen had a high regard for both the tabernacle and for the temple. He is careful to point out that the tabernacle was built according to the pattern revealed by God. The tabernacle was an important part of God's story here, but there was also a transition from the tabernacle to the temple. David found favor in God's eyes and asked him to build a permanent dwelling place, and God refused him, so Solomon built the house. Now, in reading through this section, the tabernacle and the temple, it may seem that, that Stephen has kind of more of a leaning toward the tabernacle, maybe for its portability. Again, he's trying to, to show that God is everywhere. Um, but really, as, as you really read into it, he doesn't really show a bias either way. In fact, he gives both of them the same treatment because they were both built in accordance with God's will. But he is clear that neither should be regarded as God's house. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. The Most High does not live in any house built by man. Stephen is simply saying that the time for the temple is perhaps drawing to a close, too, and the time of Christ is here. We are not to think of God only at church. In a building or limited anywhere geographically. In respect to the law, Stephen makes clear his knowledge of and respect for it. In fact, he points out the places in history that Israel pushed aside Moses from Egypt uh, when he's trying to reconcile the two men. Moses is pushed aside. Um, Then again in the desert. They built another God to worship. And oftentimes God would send prophets to rebuke Israel and still they turned from God to their own desires. So it's, it's pretty clear what Stephen is communicating here. And I've said it many times. God is not limited to anywhere by anything. He appeared to Abraham in the heathen Mesopotamia. Then he was with Joseph as he was a slave in Egypt. Then he came to Moses in the desert and made that land holy ground. In the wilderness he dwelt in a tent, yet he does not live in a house built by hands. It is not a place that God dwells on earth. Rather, it is with his people, with He whom he has promised to be with all of the time. Also in this thread of history given by Stephen, we see God's sovereign plan and ample grace poured out. Poured out on a people who didn't always embrace grace, but poured out by a God who is always willing to continue pouring. So, in this brief synopsis of history, Stephen is working hard to establish God is so much bigger than the current perception of who God is. Stephen is working to establish that God's grace is offered no matter what and always to his people who seek him out first and love him in their hearts. And now, you know, up until this point, I'm thinking, you know what? Stephen might get out of this. They may let him out, right? Then we turn to verse 51. This is Stephen's closing. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, um, one, one, pers- one commentary mentioned that Stephen's message probably could have gone on much longer, but in hearing that, they swept him away. So we don't know. Stephen maybe had more things to bring out. Um, But obviously, in God's timing, that's where he leaves us. With these three verses, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So Stephen ties a correlation to Israel's past unfaithfulness to its current religious leaders of his day. He refers to them as just like their fathers. So they're not only stubborn, they're not only stiff-necked, but they're just like their fathers before them who put to death the prophets who predicted the coming of the Holy One. And now they themselves have put that Holy One to death. I have too many papers up here. There we are. They've put that Holy One to death. Not only that, but in Stephen's exact words, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They disregard the leading of the Spirit, they disregard God's call, and they ignore the law that has been given to them from God. As we can see, Stephen stops trying to defend himself here and is all out laying out the gospel before them. He's walking through God's faithfulness to his people over the many years. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Joseph. He was faithful to Moses, to David, and to Solomon. And he's faithful still today to us. But we are stiff-necked people. We're bent on making ourselves happy, sometimes at whatever the cost, in most of our pursuits. We are most often concerned with what will satisfy our wants and our needs rather than glorifying the God of the universe. The God who spoke and planets come out. This God who is so much bigger than we can picture, who breathed and gave us life, who still works miracles around us today. This is the God that we disregard because we are stiff necked people, more bent on our own happiness than glorifying that God. We're stubborn. We think we can do life on our own. We think that there's no consequence to living life according to our rules, right? I'm just going to do this